Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Father Vincent Musindalo, who is a member of the Apostles of Jesus, who are a Catholic missionary order that was founded in 1968 in Uganda, making it the first such missionary order founded in Africa. In my conversation with Father Vincent, we spoke about his journey becoming a priest and the thought processes that went into making that decision. We also spoke about the missionary work that he's done in both Ethiopia and Australia. We then looked at the difference between the church in Kenya and Australia and the West more broadly, where Father Vincent sees the church in Western countries as being able to learn lessons from its African brothers and sisters. And through this, we discussed the ways that the church can rejuvenate itself more broadly. We then finished talking about the nature of God and God's existence and the place of priests in bringing people to God. So everyone, thank you very much for joining us and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Father Vincent, for having me here today to speak with you about uh, your personal spiritual journey and some of your personal beliefs. Um, now you're originally from Kenya and when, when were you ordained? Well, thank you, Jack, for <laughs> sparing your time and uh, spending, spending it to hear a bit of my story. It's an honor for me to share a little bit of my own self. Allow me to start by making a little bit of an observation. I'm never very comfortable with where originally are you from because I am a Kenyan and so it is my home. So I do not have two places that I belong. I am only a Kenyan today and tomorrow. And so I was actually ordained in 2013, 25th of May in my home diocese of Bungoma which is in the western parts of Kenya. And that came after 12 good years of seminary formation, which I started in 2001. Yeah, 2001, I did my propodiontic year, which I can call observation year. And then from 2002, I went to a class of philosophy which was in Nairobi for four years. I graduated from philosophy school in 2006. And by the grace of God with the first class, and I'm always very proud of my teachers and proud of what God was able to accomplish. After which I was promoted to the novitiate, which is basically a period of enclosure whereby you get into yourself to learn more about the order, to learn more about the rule of life, the character, the charism, and the spirituality of the order. So that lasted for two years, and I was in a place called Meru, which is in the east, lower eastern parts of Kenya. When I finished the two years in 2008, I received my first vows, the vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, which in the ecclesiastical terms are called evangelical councils. Upon completion, I was promoted to go and be a scholastic. That's when I started my theological studies. 
so I went to the School of Theology from August 2008. In, in, in August 2010, I went out for a year of placement, of which I went to our minor seminary, which is basically house, high school education. And I was there as a teacher and formator for one full year. And I'm also grateful to God for that occasion to be with the young people because it helped me to share the knowledge that I had received with the others and see if I can be inspirational. Because sometimes people get vocations and people get calls in lives after being inspired by others who make sense to them that they will want to identify with. And that's why when you look at the, at the secular world, you'll see the, the Ronaldos, the Messi's are very famous because a lot of kids will identify with them. So in 2011, in August, I resumed my theological studies, of which I finished in 2013 in May. And upon completion, I was the first one to be ordained in my class because my formator saw that I was ready and they were wasting my time. <laughs> so straight away from my degree examination of, of theology undergraduate, I went for the ordination. And the rest is history. So while I was in, in our minor seminary with the high school students, for my own assessment, I had a positive impact on the kids who were there because we did most of these things together and they sort of, uh, they admired my life and my understanding of priesthood in a world that was becoming secular, in a world that other jobs were more lucrative or more appealing. And... Uh, when I went back to the seminary in 2011, those who were finishing high school, two of them opted not to go to the uni, but to come to the major seminary, which was a plus because the seminary had gone for 10 years without receiving any candidate from that school. And so it was an achievement. The following year, the number increased to five. Those that I left when they were in year 11, they came to the seminary. And to me, that was a plus. Other than being successful in the church circles with the recording new vocations to our missionary order, the kids did very well in the national examinations. The mean score was nice. There was an upward mean grade of 2.1, which was something nice because I'll always wake them up very early for studies and, uh, you know, and ensure that they have time to share their knowledge with the other schools that were better than ours. And so that made them to be competitive enough. But um, being a human person, obviously there are certain things that are, I realized I would have done better than I did. So there were also failures. And one thing I regret most to date is deciding a fate of a student for dismissal. Yeah, but I, I had just to do it for the good of the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The student became sort of a, a threat to the other kids and started using drugs and abuse of substance. And so at first I talked with him out of brotherly concern with an aim of saving his space in the seminary and also saving his image. 
But then when I realized he wasn't really agreeing with my counsel, I submitted his name to the principal for dismissal. And I regret having done that because I do not know where he ended up afterwards and if he had rough time with the parents. Yeah, and so I wish I would have done something else. But because I was not knowledgeable in counseling, I couldn't help. I regret that. Yeah. But overall, it sounds like that's that's one perhaps failure amongst many success stories. Yeah, it, it only shows that we are human beings. There will always be success, but there will also be failures. Yes. And the, uh, the order that you're talking about joining is the uh, Apostles of Jesus. Well, I'm a member of the Religious Missionary Institute of the Apostles of Jesus, which was founded in 1968 by two Comboni Italian missionaries. This was at a time when the... Sudan government was expelling white missionaries from Africa. And so these missionaries sat and said, in order for faith to be propagated, we need to find the locals to continue with the work. And so they received the idea, forwarded it to, to Rome, and the, the idea was approved. And so our order was founded. It was initially to be founded in, in Sudan. But then the hostility towards missionaries made them to move away from Sudan and then go to the neighboring country, which was Uganda. So the, the congregation was actually realized. It was conceived in Sudan, but then it was realized in Uganda. But then also considering the political instability in Uganda facilitated by the reign of Idi Amin, it became unhabitable for the missionaries again. And that's how, again, they relocated from Uganda to Kenya. And so we keep on saying in our order that our congregation was conceived in Sudan, born in Uganda, and matured in Kenya. Where it will be buried, only God knows, but maybe it will be buried in the whole world. But at the moment, we are around 500 members working all over the world, in Australia, we are six. Yes. And, and what would you say is the main um, mission statement of, of the order? Just like any other institution or any other organization, our order has a mission. And the mission that we have is the evangelization of areas that are yet to be evangelized and also bringing to full maturity the areas that are not yet mature in faith. But as we do that, we also do not ignore the places that faith has grown, but then they are having deficiencies of ministers. And so whenever we are invited by the local ordinaries of whichever place, Depending on the contractual agreement, the order supplies members. But basically, that is what we do. But as we do our mission, we have a style. And our style is anchored on Christ, the Good Shepherd, whereby we feel with the flock. And as Pope Francis says, to quote his words, we smell like the sheep. 
being with the people that you serve, wherever they are, in whichever situation that they are in, taking it upon yourself as one with them, the way the image of Christ the Good Shepherd is always portrayed as a shepherd with a lamp on the shoulders. There is what we do. So when you move to, say, Australia, as you do, you, t you try and um, become as involved in the community as you can and deal with that local community as, as they are, but attempt to bring them to, towards God and bring them the word of God. That's right. The world in which we live in is a challenging world. It's a world that is yearning for examples and inspirations. And the best way to inspire people is not so much by the words, but by actions. How you live your life, that matters the effect that you're going to have. And so Australia as a country, which is very versed and very different from the culture in which I was brought up, has its own style of operation. There is a way of life in which people have grown up in. What happens as a missionary, member of the Religious Missionary Institute of the Apostles of Jesus, I come, immerse myself in the culture, see the patterns of life, adapt to the patterns of life, but as I adapt to the patterns of life, I also leave my own identity and the people that I adapt to their culture are also able to see my approach so that we all put this together. Because if you come and you're not able to adapt to people's culture, there is always a possibility of rejection and bringing antagonism. And so merging and creating a synergy is the best way to go. Not losing your identity, not losing who you are, but also not allowing others to lose who they are because Christ is multicultural and the message of Christ has to speak to us in the situations in which we find ourselves in. Because currently equally, territorial evangelization is sort of coming to an end and what we have is situational evangelization. You have to evangelize in the situations that people find themselves in. So that is what we do most at the moment. Yeah. Yep. To, to be able to do that and go into a culture or society that's quite different yet remain yourself requires a great level of personal authenticity, I would think. And you would have to be very sure of yourself and uh, yeah, authentic within yourself. Um, which it seems like you are because you entered the seminary as su at such a young age. Did you always sort of know in yourself that that was the path that you wanted to follow? And has that sort of authentic drive to serve God always sort of existed in you? You know, I want to approach your question from a completely different perspective. 
And I want to give you at this point the words of Gamaliel, the great philosopher at the Areopagus in the Acts of the Apostles, when the Jews had turned against the apostles and they were frogging and beating them and telling them to stop proclaiming the name of Christ, Gamaliel reminded his, his friends that let us just be careful. We might be fighting the Spirit of God. That if this thing is divine, it will go on. But if it is of human origin, it will come to an end. And that is how I shape my own vocation. I do not look at it as my own work, my own initiative, but I look at it as an initiative of God in me. Because as again, the book, the holy book tells us in prophet Jeremiah, that in, before we were made in our mother's womb, the Lord knew who we are and gifted us as at that time. And therefore, looking at it as an initiative of God, what happens to me as a person is only to cooperate. And how do I cooperate? By just listening to my heart. Where am I being drawn towards? And if you listen to your heart and follow your conscience, many times you avoid making errors. And all I've done in my vocation since the inception was only to listen to the voice of God and see where I'm being attracted. It doesn't mean that when I was born and I, I was growing up as a boy of two years, I, I knew I was going to be a priest. That will be a lie because everything evolves slowly. An idea was there, but it was not very clear. At a certain point in life, it disappeared and then later on reemerged. When I was two years, three years, I never knew anything to do with priesthood or religious life. That's, I never knew that. But my mom, who very much played a role and still plays a major role in my mentoring, I would say was the core of the discovery of my vocation. My mother is a very pious lady. And more or less every other time at home in the evenings we would say our evening prayers together, say our rosary together. And every Sunday we'd always go to the church. And at our local church that we used to go to, the priest there was an Irish priest. And an Irish priest who would speak my mother tongue fluently. And sort of at that age, I used to admire the guy who does not look like us speaking our own language. And of course, it not being his language, there are certain words that he would pronounce, not the way they are supposed to be pronounced, but all the same communicating the message. And it would make me laugh. And I say like, oh, here is a big white man who cannot speak. And then I said, I also want to be like this white man so that I can speak his language and see <laughs> if I'll have the exact pronunciation as him. And so that started like being my attraction towards priesthood. And then when I, I started going to school at the age of seven in year one, I asked 
my mom, they were mass servers, altar boys and girls who were helping the priest at the altar. I asked mom, how do, what do I do to be a mass server? I want to join those boys and girls so that I can be close to this white man, also to learn his language. And so mom went into the parish office and asked, my son wants to be a mass server. And she was asked, how old is he? Mom said he's only seven years, he's in year one. Mom was told, no, we don't allow mass servers at that age. At least he has to be in year three and he must be receiving Holy Communion. And at that time I wasn't receiving Holy Communion. And so what did that mean? If I wanted to be a mass server, I had to be in a catechism class. And catechism class in my country at that time and today it is a year plus, one year plus. And so my sister, the one that I follow, was starting her catechism classes that very year. So when mom went to enroll her, I also wished to enroll myself because I really wanted to be a mass server. And the catechist said, no, I was still too young for that. And he said, I'm not being enrolled. But what you can do, we shall admit you to class. You'll be coming with your sister to listen to the lessons and eventually when you are in year three you'll be ready for the sacrament i said oh yes that sounds like a deal and so we agreed so every morning over the weekend when my sister would wake up to go for catechism classes i would go with her and so when that year ended i was not actually a candidate to receiving holy communion but i had been attending the classes so, but before the sacrament, the priest would ask questions like examination sort of to see if you're ready for the sacrament and every child will come with the parents. So my sister went with my mom and because I had also been attending the lessons, I went in the class with, I went in the examination room, so to speak. And the priest there asked my sister something to do with the creed. And my sister was unable to answer. Then I answered from nowhere. I just answered in the background. He looked at me. I just answered in the background. And then he asked the days in which we pray the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. My sister answered one day. Because at that time it, it is, and even now, it is on Fridays and Tuesdays. And so my sister was only able to say on Friday. And the priest said, what about the other day? Again, in the background, I said Tuesday. He looked at me and said, and the, how, you learn this at home? Then I say, yeah, we pray with mom. And I know Monday we pray this. So I gave him all the days and the rosary type that we pray. Mondays, we do the joyful mysteries. Tuesday, sorrowful. Wednesday, glorious. You know, yeah, like that until I cover the whole week. And he sort of fell in love with my understanding of uh, Catholic faith. And uh, when I told him I, ha I had been attending classes also for the year, he called in the catechist to find out if it's true I had been attending classes. And the catechist said yes. And so all of them were convinced I was ready to be admitted to communion, though my years were not permitting. And so my sister also, because now the attention shifted from my sister to me, so she wasn't asked any other question. Both of us were allowed to receive First Holy Communion. And after my First Holy Communion, I went in as a mass server. 
the vestments that the mass servers put on were too long for me, so I couldn't. So the priest, we developed a rapport from the time of the questioning up to this time. So he went out of his way and ensured that I got a smaller one for myself. And so from year one, I was an altar boy. So when it came to going to high school, my dad never wanted me to go to a minor seminary because in his mind, erroneous mind, so to speak, he knew that in the minor seminary, they only teach religion. And he wanted me to pursue sciences being the only son, he wanted me to bring him pride and fame and not to be a priest. And so he said no. And I accepted when I did my high school, my primary national examination. I was admitted to a high school. So I went to the high school that I was admitted to, and it, which was a selective school. And my dad was very happy. He took me to form one, that is year nine. Our, our high school starts from year nine to year 12. From year one to year eight is primary. So I was there. I did all the sciences that he wanted. I did them, but still my heart was in the seminary. But when I reached year 11, I discovered the beauty in girls. And so the idea of becoming a celibate Catholic priest started vanishing. It disappeared. When I would be for holidays, I would no more go to the church to serve. No. But I would meet with Father and I greet him. We talk. Unfortunately, he also got, he died actually, not being transferred. He died when I was in high school in year nine. And so my connection sort of started reducing. And so in, when I was in year 11 and I got my first girlfriend, I concentrated on her and also because my dad never wanted me this thing, so it all disappeared. And so I did my year 12 examination and I was admitted to the University of Nairobi to do Bachelor of Commerce accounting option. I went and reported and my girlfriend equally was admitted to a nearby university called Kenyatta, Kenyatta University. She was doing public health. And so we'd meet on a weekend always. So, but some, something again happened in my life. I joined the university choir, the St. Paul's Chapel Students Choir. And the chaplain there, who is a Kenyan priest, Dr. Omugunda, from the way he would talk, from the way he would preach, from the way he would do his stuff, he sort of again reignited the desire back to be a priest. And that is when I met the vocations director of my diocese to become a diocesan priest. At the same time, I met the vocations director of the consolata missionaries who wanted me to be a consolata. I also met the vocations director of the Jesuits who wanted me to be a Jesuit. And then I met the vocations director of the apostles of Jesus, who also had no hesitance in admitting me to their order. And so I had the possibility of joining the Catholic Diocese of Bungoma, to joining the Consolata missionaries, joining the Jesuits, and joining the apostles. So here I was. I want to be a priest, yes. There are four openings that are coming up. So I said, I asked all of them, 
what is the difference between being a diocesan and being a missionary because I didn't know. All I knew was I remembered I had a priest in my parish who was an Irish priest, you know, who would speak my mother tongue and pulled me towards loving the sanctuary. Here I am, I've met a Kenyan priest who is a chaplain at the university and also a lecturer who has again made me rediscover what I was almost losing when I was concentrating on, on my girlfriend. So <laughs> the chaplain told me a diocesan priest only works within the territory, the boundary of the diocese. He can never go to another diocese or to another place. A missionary priest can go across dioceses. He's not tied to any territory. And so from there straight away, I said, I want to be a missionary because I really didn't want to be tied to Bungoma Diocese. And so I told him, okay, then I want to be a missionary. He told me, if you want to be a missionary with your level of study and your giftedness, I'll recommend you to be a Jesuit. Yeah, and the Jesuits came, we shared. The apostles came, we shared. The consolators came, we shared. But one thing struck me with the apostles that resonated with me. They told me in our order, it is from Africa to the world. We are only Africans, serving Africa and the world. The Jesuits are mixed. They are Europeans, they are Americans, they are Africans. So I said, aha, I'm more comfortable with Africa to the world so that I maintain my own identity as an African, but then go to the world. Because there is a danger, if it is multiracial, there's a danger of losing my own identity. I'm not sure if I was naive or not, but this was my thinking. And so I ended up joining the Apostles of Jesus. In 2001, I deferred my studies at the University of Nairobi, called my girlfriend and told her, you know what, Wendy? Oh, there goes her name. She was called Wendy. <laughs> you know what, Wendy? I have decided to become a Catholic priest. And all that she did was she told me, Vincent, if that is what you have decided, follow your heart. I do not want to come between you and what you have decided, but always know that I love you. And any time you think you cannot manage, I'll be available for you. And I, told, I, I didn't expect that. My expectation was that she was going to create a scene out of it. But she was very mature because she was also a Catholic and a devoted Catholic for that matter. And I went to the seminary. When I was going to report, she escorted me to the seminary. And I told the vocations director, this is my girlfriend, you know, but I've told her I want to be a priest. And she has told me it's okay. And the vocation director asked me, are you going to terminate your friendship? I told Father, no, I'm not. She remains my girlfriend because I'm not yet ordained. We see what happens. That is what we have agreed with her. And the vocation director asked her, is that what you have agreed? What will happen if he, if he is eventually ordained? She told, she told him, if he will be ordained, we have already agreed on that, it's up to him. But if he comes back, 
because I love him. He has been my first boyfriend. I'll always be there for him. And so I started my journey. But my dad, when I told him I was going to the seminary, he wasn't happy. And he told me because I was the only son, he imagined I was spoiled and knew I won't manage seminary formation. So he told me, all right, you are an adult, you can go, but I know you'll come back. So I went to the seminary with those two things. My girlfriend promising me anytime I want to go back, she's there. My dad telling me, I know you will come back. And I, I wanted to disapprove my dad. I wanted him not to know that I'm just weak. I cannot, I'm not resilient. So after one month in the seminary, I got bored with the staff there. No freedom. You cannot move and do what you want. Permission every other time. Every Somebody following you behind every other time. I didn't like that. And so I said, no, I'm packing. This is not my life. I went to the vocations director, the one who was taking care of us in the new year. I mean, in the in first year, I told him, Father, I want to go home. This is not my way of life. And he looked at me and he told me, go to the church and pray. I got mad at him. I'm telling you, I want to go home. Here you are telling me to go to the church and pray. Which rubbish is this? I went to my room, locked, locked myself in, cried then slept. So I woke up after five to six hours and said, but I, in the first place, why did I leave the university to come? I wanted to be a priest and it's like God is calling me to serve. This looks like my life, but then it's tough. Then I remembered my dad. I know you will come back. You are not resilient enough. I said, oh, so I'm proving the hypothesis of my dad by going back. I said, no. I cannot prove him right. <laughs> so I collected my books in the evening, went to the chapel for evening prayers. The director was there. He looked at me enter. I was the one leading prayers. He never commented anything. He kept quiet. The next day I was active, going about my duties, my activities, the routine of the seminary. He never told me anything. After three weeks, after mass, he told me, Vincent, see me in the office. So I went and he told me, bring your luggage. I'm dropping you to the station now. You can go home. I told him, go home. Where? I told him, I never came to go home. I'm not going. I'm staying. You came here. You told me you wanted to go home. Now I'm ready to take you. Bring your luggage. And I told him, Father, at that time when I wanted to go home, you told me no, and now I'm also not going. So having had that discussion, he looked at me, laughed, and he told me, you know what, young man, you're going to be ordained as a priest in our order. This is the crisis that develops in everyone's life, but I'm happy yours has shown itself at the very start and you have been, you have managed to come out of it, determined to go up to the end. You will make it. I'm waiting to see what happens after 12 years. I told him, thank you, Father. And we continued doing what we were doing. My first year ended. I went to philosophy. I met other students from South Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Sudan, all over Africa. We met in the Philosophical Institute, and at least I said, oh, 
I have a chance to see if my my brain is good as people from other countries, you know. And uh, it ended up well. We were in, in a class, we were 46, 46 from different orders, of course. But the, the apostles, we were 17. And there we were. From the 46 that graduated in the class of philosophy, only seven of us ended up being ordained. Where the others went, I have no idea. But that was my journey of seminary formation. Yes. Does it mean that I was one of the best students in the seminary? I'm not sure. But what I know is that there are certain things that I did, if the formators would have discovered, I would have been chased home. Others were being sent home, but I was always being kept. To me, it was the Spirit of God keeping me. Not that I was good, no. And not also that I'm bad, no. But the Spirit of God was shaping me and preparing me for the mission that I do today. And I lovingly do it. If I would die, I mean, sorry, if I would go back 36 years, I've told you my age now. If I would go back 36 years into my mother's womb and be born, and I was asked, what would you want to be? I would still say I want to be a missionary, religious priest of the apostles of Jesus. And so it seems that the the sort of intellectual level of the priesthood, learning this philosophy and then the theology has been a very big part of it for you. Well, the Catholic seminary formation is the same that you have to do philosophical studies and you have to do theological studies. They are conditions sine qua non, without which you can never be ordained. However, that's not the end of study. After you've done, those are called basic studies. After you have done those basic studies, then you can go on and do masters or do doctorate in ecclesiastical studies equally depending on the needs of the order the order can decide to send some members to do medicine others to do law others to do business depending on the needs of the order and initially before i came to australia i was actually admitted to louvain catholic university in belgium where i was going to do studies in church history to develop my theological studies but with a major in church history so that I can touch base with all the happenings in the church to try and understand why we are as a Catholic church where we are and what are the things that have led to what we are and then with the information try to look into the future and try to anticipate trends that will come. When my superiors out of the vow of obedience asked me to come to Australia and put my studies on hold until when they will want, they told me you are not yet 40 and you can go for studies any other time. When I came to Australia, the desire still remained there. And when I asked them, they gave me a go ahead. And so when they allowed me to do studies, my own wish is now to understand the laws 
of the church because I have realized that the people that I minister to, both when I was in Ethiopia and when here in Australia, the Catholic church has very good laws, but then the Christians, good number of them are not aware of them properly, or even if they are aware of them, they do not know exactly what it means. Having said that, the world as it is, the secular world, the other profession professionals, they know the Catholic Church from a spectator's perspective. They do not know the Catholic Church from an insider's perspective. And how can the other people know the insider's perspective when it is explained to them? As St. Paul says, how can one know unless he is told? And how can one be told unless he is taught? And how can one be taught unless a teacher is sent to them? And therefore, I do the canon law with an aim of teaching both my congregation, the people I'll minister to today and in the future, what the Catholic Church laws are, and also with that, help the other people who are not Catholics to know exactly what the Catholic Church stipulates. Because like there are very many debates that come up of the things that I really do not want to go into, and sometimes the people accuse and blame the Catholic Church. There is no teaching in the Catholic Church that prepares any priest or any minister of the Church to do funny things or to do wrong things. No, it is an individual's weakness. And I, I believe that all this has to be explained to the congregation. And other than helping me in my ministry now, and service to the people I'll serve, I serve and those I'll serve in the future. I also have a special desire in myself. Having been in the seminary for my placement in the minor seminary, I wish to go back to my order as a teacher in the seminary to give back to young men who are coming up to respond to the vocation of priesthood, missionary priesthood, from my own experience as a missionary in Ethiopia and now in Australia, to my experience in Kenya as a Christian, as a youth, as an adult, and as a student, and any other place that I may go from now, bring all these experiences together and be able to teach in the seminary. I cannot teach unless I have a license to teach, unless I have further education, and that is what propels my desire. But my desire is to go up to PhD so that I'm able to teach freely and then develop as an authority in this area. And yes. looking towards your PhD, what area would you think of, of pursuing that? I do not want to think about that one now. We cross the bridge once we are there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It would be like it would be like counting my cheeks before they hatch. Yeah. But I have something that I'm working on that will only become clearer as days come and go. And so you have that you have that desire to go back to, to Kenya and be a a fostering and supportive person there for the for the young students and go back almost to that teaching role that you were talking about earlier. You know, people sometimes ask me, what are your aspirations? My aspirations is just to give back to my order 
what they have given to me and to give back to the community something. And the best way for me to give back to the community is to utilize the little that I'll have acquired in shaping future missionaries who will, with what they, have, they will have received from me, go to the rest of the world and proclaim Christ. And that will give me joy. As a Kenyan, since my ordination, I have never worked in Kenya. It is my desire also that I work back in my country so that the feeling of being an alien can also go to the backyard for a while. Yeah, because there is a feeling that you have when you are in your own country that is different from when you are in a foreign land. It doesn't matter whether it's in Europe or it's in America or it's in Africa. Provided you are not in your own country, there's always a feeling that you have that this is not my place. Yeah. Have you found that that difficult going to either Ethiopia or Australia? It, I Well, I can't say that I, it has been easy. Neither can I say that it has been difficult. But it has its challenges. The first challenge, like when I went to Ethiopia as a newly ordained priest, one thing is I was excited because at least I was going to proclaim Christ and I was going to be like my Irish missionary priest, going to learn another language that is not mine. And when I went to Ethiopia, I actually received the same treatment of the Irish missionary. The way I would laugh at him that a big man who cannot speak the language well, little kids in Ethiopia laughed at me, a big man who cannot, who doesn't know the language. And I remembered, aha, I laughed at that priest. So it has come to me. And I smile at myself when that happened. But then having said the positive part of it, of the excitement of going to proclaim Christ, and this is what I want, going to be a missionary in another land. Because Christ was the first missionary at a very early age when he left Israel to go to Egypt. At least for me, I went when I was almost 30. So I wasn't as young as Christ, <laughs> but at least I was there. You tried. Yeah. Yes, and so there was, a there was a big challenge in Ethiopia. One, the Ethiopians do not communicate in English. They do not communicate in Kiswahili. They do not communicate in Italian. Those are the languages that by the time I was leaving Kenya, I spoke them perfectly well together with my mother tongue and other Kenyan local languages. And so it, it was a challenge because which language am I going to communicate? But here I am as a missionary. I went and I said, if Father John, the Irish who was in my parish, came all the way from Ireland, then who am I not to go to Ethiopia, who are just Africans like me? And so that gave me an impetus to go. And um, when I went to Ethiopia, I remembered my Italian teacher told me the best way to learn a language is through immersion, is not to learn it in class. And so I told my superiors, they wanted me to go to study the language for three months. I told them, no, I prefer you allow me just go and learn it with the people, among the people. They looked at me at first, they were shocked. 
but then they said mm, it saves us money to pay so it's okay <laughs> so i went into the field i went into the mission and there i was with the young people i didn't know anything but i was there at first i was communicating in signs and then i would gesture and ask what is this how do you say this like how do you say come and then they'll tell me amo aha uh -huh. and, and then i write it down so that's how i started learning and then i got one of our priests who had been in ethiopia earlier on had tried to transliterate some amharic language words and gedeo language words into english so that also became like my primary source other than gestures it became my primary source of learning the vocabulary and then i was able to exercise my vocabulary with the kids when i'm playing soccer with them or with the women and men when we are meeting they will laugh at me because i don't know the language i also laugh back and the, there was a friendship that developed and so they came in handy and believe me not after three months i was able to communicate well in Gedeofa and in Amharic, better than I communicate in Italian that I was in class learning for two years. I do not regret learning through immersion. Yeah, but it was a challenge. The culture, the Ethiopian culture was also a very big challenge for me because their lifestyle and the Kenyan lifestyle is different. The way they live and the way we live is completely different. They are more or less communitarian. And uh, for me, from Kenya, a little bit of capitalism. So it, there was a clash in that. Their food, they eat wasa and uh, injera, which is not in Kenya. For me, I eat chapati, ugali, and rice. But then that was my hardest part of ministering in Ethiopia, the food. But other than that, the rest of the things were very good. And uh, I thank God for them. When I came to Australia, Australia never occurred anywhere to me when I was a student. I knew our, our members were in Australia, but it never occurred to me that I'll ever be in Australia. The only thing I knew about Australia was the kangaroos. The way the Australians, the only thing they know about Kenya is elephants. And so I thought when I come to Australia, I'll meet kangaroos everywhere. But it took me one year to see a single kangaroo. And I know even Australians imagine that when you go to Kenya, you see elephants everywhere. <laughs> but those are the biases that we have. And so Australia never occurred anywhere on my radar. I knew I'm a missionary, but I had a preference for England. If you ask me why, I'll tell you before you, you ask I'm a lover of soccer and I really love to go to England so that when I'm free I can be watching my team Arsenal though we are not doing very well. So that was my motivation for wanting to go to England. Other than going to England I loved working in Kenya just with my people and giving back to the community. My belief has always been if God asks you to drop something he's preparing you to pick up something better and that's why i have no regret for dropping my going to levain because god has i have picked up a better option i have no regret for being transferred from ethiopia i've picked up a better option 
have no regret for not being in Kenya because I've picked up a better option. And so com- coming here, are there, are there differences amongst the church between here and Kenya so that it's noticeably different from the church in Australia? Australia being Australia, Kenya being Kenya, and Ethiopia being Kenya, and Ethiopia being Ethiopia, many times the way we do things or the way we do our stuff is influenced by the way we are socialized. Faith grew up with some cultural practices of the Roman Empire. And sometimes it adapts itself, the, the message of God adapts itself to the local culture because cultures differ on the way they express their religiosity. We as Africans, to quote the words of John Beatty, who is an African philosopher, we are notoriously religious. At the core of an African is religion. Don't ask me whether it's a Catholic religion, Protestant, Christianity, Islam or not. I have no idea. But at the core of an African is religion. And that drew Mbiti to saying Africans are notoriously religious. When you come to my culture, my local culture as a Luya, because that's my culture in Kenya, I'm a Muluya, we had earlier on from history, we had the mediums, we had the rain makers, we had the doctors, the they call the we used to call them witch doctors or in Kiswahili Waganga. And we also had the priests who are offering sacrifices whenever there is drought, whenever there is famine, whenever we want bumper harvest. And so we had a culture that is sort of roles are distributed and so religion was at the core of my ancestors and everything they looked at it as a gift of the gods in our own language is a gift of the gods life is a gift of the gods harvest is a gift of the gods rainfall is a gift of the gods any bad omen comes as a result of a curse when the gods are not happy with our doings and so they need to be appeased and that's why the priests will come in to offer sacrifices to appease the gods and therefore that informs why when the missionaries during the partition and scramble for africa came to africa it was easier for christianity to take root and easier for islam to take root because at the core of the African is religion. Having said that, Christianity, when it came to Kenya, there were the Anglicans, there were the Catholics, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans. But then the Catholics covered a larger area. And so the larger parts of Kenya are Catholics. But then the way we express our faith in the way the Australians express their faith is also influenced by our own context. Africans and Kenyans, so to speak, we are emotional. 
you know we are emotional australians are not i'm allow me say i don't see them showing their emotions whether they are emotional or not i don't know but as africans we are people who express our feelings and so when we when you go to a church in africa we go to a celebration and it is a celebration from the start of mass up to the end it is a celebration there is a happiness happiness in the songs happiness in the music happiness in the dance there is an active participation by everybody because we again come back from that aspect of socialism whereby in a society or in a family everybody has to actively participate that's how we are socialized and so it's not a one man show or a one woman show or a specific people show but it is everybody if he is singing the choir only animates and everybody sings and there is dancing you come to australia you find a, a few people singing in the choir and a good number of the others are just quiet and then the songs themselves they do not go with the feelings that they portray and so to me that was the first shock i received in australia and the former bishop of broken bay he asked me what is your view of our celebration of liturgy for the few days you've been here my answer was spontaneous very boring <laughs> yeah and up to now i'm not withdrawing that very boring to me it's very boring secondly because for us in kenya when we go to celebrate that day it is for church we are never in a hurry you can preach for one hour in kenya but here in northbridge if i dare preach for 12 minutes next time people will not come to church so it's also again another shift as a priest in kenya everybody is friendly to you and the the christians are very friendly to you here in northbridge and basically lower north shore there is a bit of reservation about priesthood and priests not everyone is very free with you with the exception of those that have bonded with you there is that treatment with suspicion but in in, in kenya no everybody is free with you people are all welcoming after mass people will remain with you chatting with you inviting you to their homes here after mass everybody is gone 10 minutes after mass you remain alone so it's also a difference for us our christ catholic faith the way it is is not only a sunday's thing but it is a lifestyle when you come to australia i'm avoiding to say it's not their lifestyle but it's not a lifestyle as ours it is something that occupies i don't know how to put it i lack a better word but for us church is a lifestyle to the extent that if you've not gone to church on sunday people will wonder with the type of a person you are because when you're meeting with your mates on monday or on sunday evening the discussion is how your church service went and the message that was received the message that was proclaimed so it is a way of life and here it's not a lifestyle i'm used in kenya when i celebrate mass the church is full but sometimes here you go to the church and i do head count we are not even a hundred pews are empty and i'm wondering oh god 
come down the Spirit of God and convert, touch our hearts that we may see what we are missing. But then I realize it is this situation that the Lord wants me to minister to so that I can see through me if one or two people can hear the voice of God and come back to occupy the free spaces that are unoccupied in the churches. And so I take it upon myself as my responsibility. Going on with that, in in the Western world, sort of more broadly, there there are dwindling numbers of, yes, of churchgoers. Are. That's and right. I suppose active participate active participants in the Catholic Church. Um and coming back to what you were talking about earlier is that in in the Catholic Church there's a vast body of uh, law and of understanding of God that exists in the church and it's often quite difficult for even people that go to Mass on a Sunday to understand um, some of those teachings, let alone sort of get through that that vast body that exists. Uh, but if you if you were to have sort of one teaching that you could uh, put to those people that either struggle with understanding the church's teachings or that have never had the church's teachings put to them in a succinct way, what would you go to them with? What would be that teaching that you would think could help start to bring some of those people back to the church and deepen the people's in the church's understanding of what what the the church really is it's true that in the western world the number of believers is dwindling but this dwindling, dwindling in my own understanding is as a result of the way Faith has been packaged, the branding of faith, not only Catholics, but the branding of Christianity. That is at one level. The other level is the way people received faith. And the other thing also that has contributed to the dwindling numbers is the some of the things that have happened within the church circles. As St. Paul says in some of his writings, for the weaker ones in faith, there are certain things that make them lose faith. Unfortunately, some of the things that have happened within the corridors of the church have not been inspiring but have been discouraging. Having said that, human beings are relational. We are relational beings. We have that desire in us to relate to one another and to relate to the supernatural being. It is in all of us. All of us are relational. My own approach has been and will always be relational connection. If we develop a bond amongst ourselves, a bond that is tight, then people have a reason to go out and hang with each other. 
It's just like you. You always have that longing for a weekend to come so that you can hang out with your friends because there is a bond between you. There's that connection that exists. And unfortunately, that is what at a certain point in the Catholic faith, either people ignored or they never concentrated on that. Secondly, the way I believe is that I am not Christ and people are not following me as Vincent, but people are following Christ. I never died on the cross for anyone. It's Christ who died on the cross for all of us. And so when I deliver my message, I always remind my fellow Catholics that do not believe in me as Vincent, but believe in God. Because if you believe in me, I am not the Catholic Church. No, I'm only an individual in the Catholic Church. And if we remain at believing in priests or believing in bishops or following priests and bishops and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, then when they disappoint us, we lose faith. And so sometimes I present myself also as a weak human person who can make mistakes and remind my fellow congregants, in the event that I make a mistake, it is my mistake as Vincent. It is not mistake of Christ, or is it not? It's not a mistake of God. And I insist and I stress that. The other thing that I would say is sometimes we have or we present some of there has been an aspect in the Catholic Church of we priests being special. And sort of some people have got tired with that because our speciality has either made us inaccessible, arrogant, insensitive. And I work on it myself as a person to ensure that I'm accessible, communitarian, approachable, accepting that I can make mistakes. And when concerns are raised, I acknowledge and ask for forgiveness because that is what God wants us to do, to acknowledge that we are all sinners, but then his graces is sufficient. My being a priest is not better than you, a Christian who is responding to your call as a married Christian. It's not, it's not better. It's all vocation in the catholic church you respond to it as a married man i respond to it as a priest we are all catholics believers that's my approach in that there's that real communitarian aspect which talking about uh australia before you said people come to mass and then within 10 minutes everyone's gone whereas in kenya Sunday is almost an affair and everyone comes together and it has that communitarian aspect. And perhaps that's why numbers are growing in Africa, whereas in Australia and I suppose the West more generally, that excessive privatization of people's personal lives has led to um, people also privatizing their faith and then withdrawing from from the church altogether. I beg with all due respect 
to give a different aspect. I'm avoiding to use the word I disagree with your idea. Please disagree. No, but I beg to bring in a different dimension. To the, you say that that has led people to privatizing their faith. My only concern is you go to the stadia. It's full. Yeah, when the roosters are playing with the greens, it's full. You go to the beaches, they are full. Go to coffee shops, they are full. So it's not the aspect of privatizing. It's the aspect of faith not being a priority in life, not seeing the need and the sense. And therefore, that is what we should work towards, all of us as a community, not only me as a priest, but even you as a believer, to come together and see, we as believers, this is our situation. How can we make the church again relevant? How can we make our faith practical? Australians are faith people. And if you want to know that Australians are faith people, go to the church on Christmas Day and Easter Day. Go to the church during baptisms or chrismation, so to speak. They come, all the family members come because it matters. They see it as a value. And so we have to reach a point whereby we enter into an open dialogue to see what is it that can make us only in a week, just spare one hour just for the church and glorify God together. So that even if we have been working the full day, a full week, even if we have a backyard to clean, or we are tired, we want to sleep in. We can even attend the six o'clock mass in the evening. What is the reason that makes us remain at home, but then go to watch football with the others? That is what we all of us have to discover, is the relevance. Is the church relevant in the life of people? Is Christ relevant in the lives of people? Unfortunately, the way the society is at the moment, at whichever levels, there are various levels of the society that are frustrating the development of faith. Because unless something becomes part of our way of life, once we put it on the peripheries, then it's, it doesn't occupy the center of people. When you go to Kenya in our schools, faith is an aspect of it. When you go to our legislation, faith is an aspect of it. When you go to all our meetings at whichever level, faith is an aspect of it. I don't know of Australia because I'm not an Australian. Yeah, well, in our, in our parliament, they open with prayer. They open each parliamentary session with prayer. But there's people that, that want to get rid of that. And there is... Um, I suppose the broader political idea of the separation of church and state, which you know, started in the US, but and sort of migrated over here, or was adopted here when we sort of started setting up the the country. But I think it's good to have separation of state and religion. It's a good thing. Mm -mm -mm. But separation of state and religion. Who are the people? Who are who are the people in religion? And who are the people in state? They're the same people. So in as much as there is separation, of which is a principle that I personally support, because 
State issues have to be dealt with at that level. Religious issues have to be dealt with at that level. But there has to be what we call, what I call interdependence. Interrelational coexistence. Yes. Because even those people who govern in the state are Christians, so they are believers. Mm. So they also need to be nurtured. We are all God's people. Yeah, we are all God's people. After all is said and done, the only thing that remains is God. Our investments will perish. Our education will come to an end. But God will forever remain. And sometimes I've had people telling me, but how comes if there is no God? And my simple answer has always been, he doesn't worry me. It's better to believe and find that there is no God, unlike fail to believe and find that there is God. Just like a student who reads everything that he or she has studied, and then, but everything doesn't come in examination. But part of what he or she read, if it comes in examination, that's a better student. Unlike a student who doesn't read, saying these will not come in examination, and then it comes. Yep. So better to believe in God and then discover later on that he's not there. Unlike not believe in him and then discover that he's there. But God is there. And by one thing that makes me convinced that there is God is that there is certain knowledge that God has denied us. We do not have it to show that we are imperfect and we rely on him. How comes we have diseases that we can never discover medication? How comes? How comes that we have certain things that we have no control over? We may say that we are in control, but we are never in control. We are never in control of disasters when they happen. Like at the moment in my own country, there are landslides that have killed people. How comes we are not in control? There's somebody else in control. What happens when we have done all that we wanted to do? We've done all the traveling. We've done all the investment. We've raised up a good family. And our life in this world is coming to an end. All those things don't make meaning. The only thing that makes meaning is God. And that convinces me that there is God. And that's why I don't regret being a Christian. I don't regret being a Catholic. I don't regret practicing my faith. All I can do is to encourage you and the others to come back and practice our faith. I don't mean that you don't have faith. You have it. The only thing is to come back and practice it. Can we rediscover the spark? Fine, we shall say that some people in the church have done silly things. I accept. How many cars have had accidents? How people stopped driving cars? How many families are broken down? How people stopped raising families? How many businesses have collapsed? How people stopped investing? That doesn't mean that we should condone whatever happened. No, we should, we should condemn it. But then does it mean that we lose faith? No, we don't believe in human beings. We believe in God. Yes, and that has to be our message, all of us. It's not only for the priest. It's for all of us as Christians. And each one of us, as Joshua tells us, I and my family will follow the Lord. We have to make a decision. It is a personal choice that we make in life.
that I as Vincent, I as Jacques, I want to practice my faith. Some people say I can remain at home and follow the service on the television. True, you can do that. But look at it from this perspective. Imagine you are alone in a class when you are studying your law. You alone in that lecture hall. Wouldn't it be very boring? It's fun when you are a number of you. Because we are, as people, we are relational. We need each other. And that's why we have to come together, each one of us from our home, from our experiences of the week, and join in praising and glorifying God, raising our prayers as a community because we belong to one another. That is the essence of coming together to pray in a church or to gather together to show that we belong to each other, to praise God together so that I come with my stress of the week I come with my frustration of the week. I come with my successes of the week. And all of them we present to God as a community. You were talking before about the, the packaging or the branding of, yes, yes. of the church. Do you think that, uh, the, and, and in that vein, the, the, the popular image of God is... The, the old man with the long flowing beard, the, the old father who is almost an identifiable person that has these sort of attributes that are very, and he's, that makes him very personified. Uh, do, do you think that that's, and, and as a result, he's, he's also seen as sort of overbearing and, uh, very involved and requires a lot from people's lives. Do you think that that image of God also puts people off so that when they do come to a congregation together and there is that sort of overbearing image of God, it's, also, it's quite daunting to, to sort of put yourself before, before that? One thing we have to admit that human beings have tried to personify God according to their own limited understanding. And because as human beings we express what is in us, either in words or in images or whatever, unfortunately at one point, some people presented the image of God in the words that you use. Nevertheless, there is not the image of God in the scripture. The image of God, the image of the God of Jesus who dies on the cross is not an image of a domineering Lord. He's not an image of an over-demanding person, but it is an image of a humble person who even forgives those who have taken him on the cross, who even forgives the other thief who is together with him on the cross and tells him, Today you'll, you'll be with me in paradise. A forgiving God. That's the image of the God that we worship. The image of the prodigal son who has eaten all his inheritance and the father welcomes him back without even allowing the boy to express what he had planned. That's the image of a God that we have. Because who is God? God is love. And if God is love, he can never be domineering. He can never be over-demanding. But he's a God who knows that 
he's a father who knows that his children are fragile his children can error can make mistakes but his love is not pegged on all the children do his love is boundless it has no limitation it overflows and whenever we go back to him he welcomes us with outstretched arms to embrace us back as his children without segregation is a god who never abandons us even when the world abandons us that's the image of god the true image of a god i believe in yes a god who wants no one to remain on the periphery he doesn't want anybody on the margins he wants each one of us to be at the center the god who does not want spectators a god who wants all of us to be players that's a god i believe in and that's the god i proclaim a god of love compassion a god of understanding yes but as the word of god tells us that god chooses the weak in order to shame the strong look at mary herself was she the best girl in her village no she was among the anawim the useless people look at even where christ himself was born he was born in a crib house of animals sheep and cows was he born in an inn no is that a god who is over demanding if he is a god who was over demanding would have demanded the best hospital but he didn't do that was his father a prime minister or a president no a carpenter that is the image of a god that we serve and this is the image that we have to change and how do we change it by our way of life we ourselves and pope francis invites all of us as catholics to change our paradigm to exercise what i would call a paradigm shift from the approach of bossing and being bosses to the approach of serving and being available for service from the approach of being untouchable to the approach of humility because if we present ourselves as the untouchables then we are going to be ashamed and embarrassed but i believe over and above everything that the message of god and the faith in god will forever be here you and i will come will go but the word of god will never go i can bet on that with my life trust me <laughs> Will. we may be under we may be undergoing dwindling numbers in the west but all is not lost even the economy at a certain time it has crunch but then it picks up so we shall rediscover the spirit of god will lead us because this church has been here for over 2000 years many empires and emperors have come and collapsed but the church of god is alive and will always be alive because it's not a making of human beings but is a making of god himself well father vincent uh thank you very much for taking your day off to to chat with me um it's very generous of you 
and a, a great example of living a Catholic life. I'm humbled for you being here and uh, it's like when you drop a fish in water. That's right. Well, Father Vincent, thank you very much and uh, we'll be talking with you soon. Oh, I'll be talking with you soon. My pleasure, Jacques.